0: The Enter Sad Men Podcast: Every Rock and Metal Album You Should Own, Reviewed, Rated, and Ranked.
1: We thought we'd we'd kind of do this chronologically because it makes the most sense to our aged brains to, to do it that way, and um, just talk through kind of your career and um, you know how you got to where you are. Um, and yeah, I, I saw um I was watching uh, one of the videos from last year's album, Passion, which obviously done by Zoom, which was, which I think, I an mean, interesting experience. And we'll get to all of the kind of the current stuff. But um, just when, how, when did you start? When did you pick up a guitar? When did you become, in your head, a musician?
2: Uh, early 60s. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you, got, you guys aren't as old as me, but, I mean, we music, we used to listen to music on Radio Luxembourg on a crystal set that I built myself because uh, that was the only way to to get any uh, and uh, two-way family favorites was the other one because the forces used to um, uh, request stuff that they'd heard in America. So that's when I first started to hear rock and roll and blues, you know? Um, and it was a little oasis of music really this, this Sunday afternoon program. And then in the evenings on Radio Luxembourg, um, you would hear the pop records at the time, really, but a lot of them were actually R&B, and we, when we didn't realise. Um, and then I've, I, I got a guitar, like a lot of kids did back then, got a, a I don't know, 30 Bob acoustic, unplayable acoustic guitar, just like loads of people, you know I mean? You talk to a lot of people from my generation, and we all started the same way. It's really funny. We all started on a unplayable Spanish guitar. <laughs> um, and then I eventually got my first... Well, I actually glued... Uh, there, there used to be an Army and Navy store in Bradford, where I'm from. And uh, I discovered these things called contact pickups. So I sellotaped a tape to contact pick up to the front of my huh. guitar, and plugged it in the back of a radio because there was a gram input on the back of a radio. <laughs> and that was my first amp. And I actually went and played gigs with it at, at, at a youth club. They must have sounded diabolical. <laughs> but you just you just worked with what you got, you know. Kids don't do that now, do they? They won't start unless they got a Les Paul or a Strat.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so true. <laughs> Well, I, I don't. I mean, I, I couldn't carry a tune if I had handles. So, I'm, you know, I, I have absolutely no idea how you boys do what you do. But um, when did it become a career, though? When did you? When, when did you go? Actually, this is what I want to do for a living.
2: Okay. Well, I was in groups, as we used to call them then. We weren't bands. Um, just playing around. I mean, there used to be. What are the things that I really? feel sorry about for for young musicians now, is that there's not the amount of work. I mean, we could play every night of the week. There were youth clubs, working men's clubs, obviously, pubs, which we weren't supposed to play in, but we did, Um, village halls. There was just stuff everywhere, even cinemas. I mean, on on Saturday afternoons, when there was a matinee, they, they used to have groups on in the intervals, you know, so you could play every night and that's how you got your chops, really. I mean, I didn't, I've never been any good at practising. I'm still not now. Um, I just like to play. So we used to go out and play, you know. So I found like, like-minded like kids. Uh, um, I mean, we must have been awful, um, but we just went out and played until we weren't awful, you know. And then I went from group to group. I, I, I You know, I, I got in a bit better group and then a bit better group and a bit better group. Do you remember who were your first musical influences
0: in terms of, you know, your musicianship and your style? Who, who actually really got their way into your head in terms of how you know, how you wanted to play?
2: Well, early on, it was probably a bit of Chuck Berry. Some of the R&B artists, like, like Tommy Tucker and people like that, because we didn't know it was blues. We just thought High Heel Sneakers was a pop song, you know? And... And obviously Hank Marvin, I never put that on the list actually, but I mean, probably the first Shadows album was a, was probably quite a big influence, you know? Yeah. Um, and back then, if you were gonna, I think I've always had a, wor- a bit of a work ethic, so I, 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 I mean, I can't remember, but I guess I am guessing because the sort of stuff that we used to play was we ma- we had to make ourselves accessible, so you'd have to play all sorts of stuff. And if you listen to the first Beatles album, you get an idea. I mean, things like "Till There Was You," which was from a show, is on that. Because obviously they were the same. You know, they they had to work, mm-hmm. so you couldn't go out and do a whole set of Chuck Berry stuff, for example. You had to put some other stuff in that older people had listened to to get the work. So, but I suppose it made us um, it made us into more rounded musicians because it it wasn't just three chords, you know, we had to learn some other things. So yeah, I mean the first properly proper serious band that I was in was probably about nineteen sixty six. That was the that was when I s when I wasn't doing the little local band stuff and I joined a band that was basically pro, uh and doing the and going off to Germany and doing the, the German gigs and stuff like that. No, the that band that was in in sixty six. Then I got I got a gig in a band in sixty seven that had a record contract with uh, with Parlophone. Um, Then when that folded, I got a gig in another band that was pro, and it was at a gig that I was doing with them that this really very sort of fairly high profile pro band offered me a gig, and they would they were the backing group for Dave Berry. Do you remember Dave Berry? yeah so i suppose that was the first proper jump in my career that i was i was dave's guitarist for a while yeah and then it was it gets a bit strange now this this band used to go it was they used to work on their own as well i say they because they were pretty well established before i joined and they were quite big on the northern soul circuit because they had a brass section and um I think I kind of ruined it because with it having a brass section, I wanted to do Chicago blues and we were, we were really good at Chicago blues. The rhythm section was shit hot, you know, with a great drummer and a great bass player. And we were a good Chicago blues band, but the agency kept booking us into like, so sort of Northern soul gigs and they hated us. And they'd loved the band up until when I joined, you know, so I really, I really buggered it up, you know, um, (laughs) But that band, that band, we used to work with Dave Berry and then we used to work on our own. And then they always used to get uh, a gig, apparently traditionally they would always get a gig away sometime when Dave was having his, because he used to have quite a long holiday break. And the first one I ever did with them was in Portugal uh, at the casino Estoril. Uh, And then the following year we got a gig in the Bahamas and, it, and that, that's the gig that changed everything, because we, we went over to the Bahamas as we were, as this six-piece soul band. And what it was, it was a club called the Joker's Wild. It was on Freeport. On, it was in Freeport on Grand Bahama. And what it was, was this, this, new, this Jewish New York, new Jewish guy called Dave Fishman, who'd realized that the Bahamas were close to the southern states of America and within easy striking distance for American college kids. So he opened this club called Jokers Wild, and he started shipping English bands in. Uh, And, of course, English bands were a great attraction to uh, American college kids. And it was only a 40-minute flight from, uh, from like, Florida or any of the other southern states. So it was seven nights a week we used to play um, in the club, and it's always full of American college kids. And it wasn't like doing a residency because they only stayed for a week and then you get a whole new audience. Because back then, bands used to dread having a residency. It was the pits, you know, Mm because playing the same place every night forever was horrible, you know. But it wasn't like that. It was was the best of all worlds, really, because you left the gear set up. Obviously, you didn't have to hump it in every night. So the gear was set up. Great house PA, and you got an audience for a week, and then they'd all sod off, and you get an, another new audience, and it was all American college kids that were well up for an English band. Um, and during that period, our a couple of members of our brass, brass section weren't liking it, so they they went home. So we had to change the format of the band, and it became. Do you remember when bands were called underground? Well, when there was underground music, yeah. Well, that's we went into that. So one of the sax players stayed, so we were a four-piece. So we were drums, bass, me, and and one sax player. So his name was Albie, but Albie could play tenor and an alto at the same time. Wow! So we used to play three-part harmonies between us. and it became quite quite prog, I suppose, for its time. Plus, one of the guys that had left was the lead singer. So me and Harvey the bassist had to suddenly be we were dumped into it, really. So we shared the singing. And did, uh, did you know you
3: sing, John? Did, did, did you did you back your own singing style at that stage, John? Or was this a kind of new thing?
2: Well, I was when you think about my voice, if you listen to my stuff maybe not so much now, but in the Argent days, my voice was really unfashionable. I got this high voice, and everybody back then was supposed to sound like Otis Redding or whatever, you know? <laughs> Especially having been in a, in a soul band or a Chicago blues band, my voice was, they wouldn't let me sing. <laughs> um, I used to sing the high harmonies. I used to sing the girls' parts, basically, you know? Um <laughs> But then we were chucked into the deep end, and around about that time, we were a, pro- a guy came into the club. Um, I mean, it's, it's a real rock and roll story. A, a promoter came to the Bahamas on holiday, came in the, into the club because he heard about this, these English bands, um, and approached us after the gig and said, "Do you want to come to America? I want to be your manager." Uh, and he told us about the stuff that he was doing. He was based in in Miami, North Miami Beach, and it basically him and his partner were booking all the big bands that were coming through. And he said, "I can, you can be the opening act for everybody that comes through." That was the attraction. Wow! So, of course, we said no. No, of course, we said yes. And uh, <laughs> and he said, "I'll put you in, a, in an apartment and I'll get you a car." Um, so we went. We finished the residency at the Joker's Wild, and we went off to Miami. Sort of got, got on uh, more of a set together that would, because f- it was because we were all of a sudden going from being working in clubs to playing in festivals doing festivals. You know, I mean, we'd never played to more than probably, I don't know, three hundred and fifty people, and we were going to be playing to a thousand people minimum overnight. So we had to put together a festival set. You know, something sh- snappy. 40 minutes long i mean we again we were used to doing we did we did as many as nine sets a night at joker's wild wow <laughs> so can you imagine how many songs we had to have you know yeah. so it was a real sea change for us so we off we go to america there were some of the bands that we opened for you won't have heard of because they were just big on the american blues scene well the american rock scene uh, there's a band called pacific gas and the electric they were a bit like a chicago type band I mean, did you hear them at all no no no. they were huge um obviously savoy brown was they were huge they, i mean they would savoy brown were an english band but they became successful in america and stayed there. there Was another band called uh blues image they were amazing the 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 guitar player in blues image was, was was phenomenal but they just a lot of the bands never came over here you know they were just big in america and then the first biggie came along, which was Hendrix, and uh, of course that was killer for me because me being a guitar player, uh, I thought that maybe after that gig I wouldn't want to play again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Did you get to meet him, John? Did you get to have a chat with him?
2: No, it was it was it, it it turned a bit sour to be honest. In fact, I didn't watch his set. I was so angry that I went home. We we got in there got all our gear set up and everything and then we were backstage getting ready and then all of a sudden his tour manager swept in and said i want everybody out but we want the backstage clear completely clear we don't want anybody backstage so they basically they just threw us out Mm. and i was really really pissed off i thought there's no need for it you know but uh the gig itself was interesting because back then um, often what would happen is that you'd be playing away. If you were if you were opening for a band, uh, you'd be playing away and all of a sudden the power would go off. Yeah. Um, if you were doing too well, the main band's <laughs> tour manager would cut you off. Um, and This happened on the, at the Hendrix gig and we were playing away and it was going really well and the audience were liking it. All of a sudden everything went off. And I just turned around, I just kind of accepted it I turned around to unplug my guitar and all the power came back on again. And I turned to Harvey, the bass player, and, and smiled, you know. And he pointed past me because I was between him and, and the PA stack at that side. And I turned around and our manager, Paul, the uh, Hendrix's tour manager was kneeling down next to the main power and he pulled it out. Our manager, Paul, was stood next to him with a gun to his head I so plugged it back in again. <laughs>
0: Brilliant!
2: But that was a that was a crazy. I mean, I could I could go on for hours about this. But it was a crazy period because we um, things happened that would there. It's a TV series, really. <laughs> um, we discovered also weird lots of weird things started happening. Um, We were in our apartment one night. Our apartment was on the first floor. Paul's apartment was on the fourth floor, but it was directly above us, and we all had balconies. It was typical American apartment block, you know, with a swimming pool and everything. And we were all sitting in our lounge one day, and I was sat on the floor, and uh, all of a sudden Harvey looked quite shocked. He was looking past me, and he looked quite shocked. And I said, what's... What's up? And he said, Paul just went past the the, the window. And I, and I said, what, is he messing around? I thought he'd gone in the apartment next door and has climbed over the balconies because he could. And we used to do that sometimes. There was another band staying. And he said, no, he went that way. <laughs> and what it was, was the drug squad had busted him. Um, <laughs> they'd hung him because he was dealing coke. That's where all the money was coming from, we discovered. <laughs> So our posh car and our apartment and the, on all the road crew and everything it was all been financed by cocaine oh, and uh, paul got busted and apparently these these coppers um they'd held him out of the over the balcony by his ankles uh, and they'd said they'd said to him if you tell us um we, we need to know where you're getting it we're trying to get the big dealer you know the, the big the main man. We want so tell us, give us some names, and we'll we'll go. We'll walk out. And if you don't tell us, we'll let go. <laughs> so he said, "Fuck off! I'm not telling you anything."
0: <laughs>
2: so the guy let go. <laughs> Brilliant.
3: And then you came back to Bradford.
2: <laughs> uh, well, it was a it was a little bit like that actually, because because shortly after that. The band, a couple of guys in the band said, look, we, we're getting really frightened about all this crap. You know, we want to we want to knock it on the head. And um, we've got some really great. This is me again, uh, but we've got some great gigs in the diary and I just wanted to do them, you know. And uh, so we had this long meeting uh, and at the end of it, we agreed that we'd stick around Uh and I'd said, "Look, I'll go and see paul and i'll say we we need to be ta- if we if we if you take us away from all this, move us somewhere else um keep us away from all this stuff, then we'll keep going and we we all agreed that's what would happen uh and then when I got up next morning, everybody had gone <laughs> wow they were they well, were just, just they were just humoring me they didn't want to do that you know <laughs> So I went to see Paul and I said the same thing, really. I said, look, if you want, if you want, I'll put a new band, I'll put a band together, which ended up being the very first John Verity band.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, So I put adverts in the local free ads paper and found a drummer and bassist, and that was the first John Verity band. And I can't remember what the first gig was now, but I know it was a big one and it was the first gig that I, I ever sang lead vocals you know as a as a frontman and it was in front of a lot of people i can't remember it might have been the joplin gig i don't know uh, but it was very scary because i'd never i'd always just been in a band i'd never been john verity you know yeah, yeah. i don't yeah, know yeah. if that makes any sense but I, you know it you when you're in a, in a band and it's called a band it's completely different what happened was I was quite happily, things were going well, and there was a record deal on the horizon, which would have been amazing. Are you familiar with the name Tom Dowd?
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
2: yeah. We we went to Criteria Studios and did some recording, and Tom Dowd really liked me, and he, it looked like I was going to get signed by Atlantic. And then we got a knock on the door one day, and it was the, the uh, immigration people, and they said, well, you can either leave the country or we'll throw you out. And if we throw you out, you're not coming back. Um, Cause I was working without work papers. What we used to do was we used to fly out to the embassy in Nassau and get, keep getting a, our visitor's visa extended. Cause it was really hard to get work papers back then. And, every time I got a stamp on my passport, it was getting shorter and shorter in time, you know, because they sussed me. Uh, And the last time I'd gone, they gave me 10 days, (laughs) um, which was worse than useless. So I just didn't go back. So basically I was just there and I shouldn't have been there. So they said, well, if you leave, we'll let you off sort of thing, you know, if you just go. Mm. So I went and... uh, as I left, they must have, um, well, they did know. The people that, when we went through, uh, they, they obviously knew and they stamped my passport. Um, entry denied, it said, um, basically not to apply for a year to, to come back again. So it just it buggered everything up, really. Um, but during the time that I'd been there, I'd been writing songs, so I had a bunch of stuff. I had all the material for an album, really. When I got back to England, it was like... It was like getting home from cloud cuckoo land, really. It was, uh, I sort of got real. Do you know what I mean? It was like I got, I came down to earth with a bit of a bump, but I just realised that I ought to really stay here and uh, started looking for musicians and I built a little a little studio, uh, a very rough and ready studio underneath a, underneath a sheet metal factory in Bradford. and <laughs> So I demoed all this stuff for the first John Verity Band album. did you tell wow. you produce it, John
3: was that, was, were you already producing at that stage and engineering and all that sort of stuff
2: well when when we were all living in in the apartment in uh, in miami um, i made a, <laughs> I made a cupboard into a studio, so it was literally a broom cupboard <laughs> i I used to sit in there, I had two tape machines, uh, two real to real tape machines. I had um, a suitcase uh, and a tambourine. That was the drum kit. The suitcase was the kick drum, the tambourine was the snare. And I used to sing the cymbals. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and I'd record the drums, the drums on one machine, and then I'd transfer them to the other machine and add the bass line. And then I'd transfer them back onto the other machine and put my guitar on. And then I transfer and back on the other <laughs> machine and put my vocals on. So by the time it was, <laughs> but uh, it, I, it made me. It, that was my start. Yeah, I mean, I was hooked then yeah. on gear. I was hooked on gear. So as yeah. soon as I got back to England, I was looking for somewhere that I could kind of roughly soundproof and uh, and put a little control room in. And then I got some very. Basic gear. I got uh, I got a fair a pair of um, Philips Pro twelve tape machines, which were X BBC, and uh, a Vortexian mixer. A Vortexian mixer, <laughs> which had four knobs on it, <laughs> <laughs> four, four big knobs, on off, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, that's where I demoed all the songs that I got for the first album that I did yeah. for the first album. Uh-huh. And then and then of course, um I mean that, that record deal was great because I, I signed to ABC Dunhill and I was the first English artist to sign to ABC and and it was amazing really because it was the same label as one of the big heroes, which was BB King. And uh and then back then what used to happen was when when an artist or a band had a new album out. The record company try and get him an opening slot on a tour, Um, and they managed to get me an opening slot on the Argent on the new Argent tour coming up, and it was just really a case of classic case of being in the right place at the right time. During that tour, Russ Ballard decided he was leaving, and um, he said, "And I think you should look at the guy in the in the support band." So that's how it all came about, really.
3: But did you have to think twice, John? I mean, was there any sense that, you know, you were doing what you were doing with your band and you had a kind of direction in your mind? Or do you just, when Arjun come knocking on your door, you just
2: say, fuck that, I'm in? No, I didn't. <laughs> I said no at first. Did you? Yeah. I thought, I really thought that I'd, my album was out and I was going to be a star. I mean, let's face yeah, it, yeah. I, I yeah. was going to be massive. And, yeah. uh, and, and they offered me the gig... Um, and then I, I used to I used to live in a village called Queensbury, which is one of the highest villages in the country. And like three months later, I was freezing my nuts off in this little house. Uh, the album had stiffed completely, uh, and the record company had dropped me. <laughs> and I got a phone call again from Argent, Argent's management, saying, "Would you reconsider?" <laughs> And guess what I said?
0: Oh, let me, let me think. Did you pretend, did you pretend I, did, think?
2: I actually, I did say, I did say, uh, let me think about it and I'll ring you back. <laughs> that's how stroppy I was. <laughs> and then I put the phone down and I went, yes!
0: <laughs> what are your best memories of, of the Argent times?
2: Um, well, on on the on the argent on the tour where i supported argent i i had stood in the wings watching them and think and thinking if i had bob henry on drums and jim ronford on bass i'd conquer the world i did honestly stand there thinking that and then a year later i had that and then of course a couple of years after that i really had that because we had phoenix and it was the three yeah. of us yeah
0: um
2: but I've always been a, being a big rhythm section person you know I've always been a big fan of good strong rhythm sections
1: do, do you think uh, yeah if you look at all of the kind of really big bands they've all got it's all built around that back line isn't it all of all of yeah. the really successful stuff is built around a solid backline mm. yeah absolutely so what 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 happened? I mean, you know, obviously, you, you, three years after you join Argent, you've you've got as you say you've got Phoenix. Well, how did all that come to an end then?
2: Um, we were on tour in America and uh, we got we we got snowed in in Cle. I think it was in Cleveland, uh, and we got we were stuck at the airport. I mean, you couldn't see in front of you, and all the flights were cancelled. And the promoter was trying to get us on a little plane. And we're all saying no, and then they tried. They hired a vehicle and tried to get us out of the airport, and we and we got stuck. And so we went back, and uh, we just got talking. Really, we got talking about money. I mean, what used to happen back then is you used to pay yourself a wage. That's how you used to run it, like a company, and pay yourself a wage, and then maybe get bonuses every now and again. But the problem with a lot of bands back then, I mean, it's, t- it's completely turned around now, but you didn't make any money touring at all, nothing. You used to lose money touring, and the record company would underwrite the tour, and then they would take it out of your royalties. So you didn't get any royalties, in effect. Mm, yeah. you know, They would keep you on the road promoting the albums because they were making shitloads of money out of selling albums, but you just constantly owed them money. And we were just thinking, well, we're working our nuts off and and risking our lives as well. I mean, this, this one particular tour is a whole other story. Um, it was a nightmare. And we just decided between us that we should knock it on the head. Rod was already writing stuff that wasn't necessarily very good for, for Argent. He wanted to do a solo album. I was going to form a band along... Uh, uh, alongside Argent anyway, I mean, a lot of people were doing that. The last Argent album, uh, Phil Collins played drums on some of it because Bob was ill, Uh, and Phil was a classic case. I mean, as well as being in Genesis, he had a band called Brand X. You know, a lot of people had side projects, so I was going to do that anyway, because I wanted a more straight-ahead band. So if you want, I I was happy that Argent would be my day job and I would do this other thing on, on the side, this this straight-ahead rockier thing and where I could show off a bit on guitar. <laughs> and yeah. um, So that ended up being my main project, because the, the, once I'd told the other guys that that's what I was going to do anyway, Bob and Jim said they were up for it as well, so that's why Phoenix happened. So Rod went off and did his solo thing. Um, John Grimaldi did some solo stuff, uh, and we put Phoenix together.
3: Very good. I was listening to um. I was I was on YouTube earlier. There's no hiding place now, John. Is there? Everything's out there on YouTube. I was watching uh, uh, <laughs> Easy. I was looking. I was listening to Easy on on the uh, on on the laptop earlier. It mm. just looked and, and felt great. You looked like it looked like you had an absolute blast.
2: <laughs> that was Supersonic, I think. Do you remember Supersonic? Yes. Yeah. I think I think that's what it was. I think it was on Supersonic. Yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah. 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 Great stuff, and that was the music you were playing. That's what Phoenix were, was it? Presumably, that kind of sort of almost like straight ahead rock.
2: Yeah, that's what I wanted. I mean, we we were kind of ahead of our time when you think about it. I mean, because there did end up being like a new wave of of rock, British rock.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: yeah. That the the problem was that our timing was the worst timing because punk happened. Yeah. It was nineteen. It was nineteen seventy six. did Within minutes of releasing the album, we were probably the most unfashionable band on the planet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, it's just a, that that's that's a, such a rock and roll story, though, isn't it? Because yeah, you you can you look at lots of bands and you think, God, if only they'd been a year later or a year earlier or this or that. But actually, in the end, it all happens for a reason, doesn't it? Yeah, you, know, you, you kind yeah. of. Along and, yeah, and
2: stuff. We saw it coming because I mean we were managed by a company in the West End, in, in the West End that um, they also managed Queen, and at, at that time um, we they had a studio called Trident on in St Anne's Court, which is between Wardour Street and just up from the Marquee. Mm. Um, so when we were recording, we got we used to go in this pub called the Ship, uh, and all the bands used to go in there, and it was. It was always, they, they, were, they were usually, I'm not exaggerating, there'd be 20 bands in there. You know, everybody would be down there for their meetings and then everybody had got the ship. So you were hanging out with other bands and you could see it week by week, people morphing from. <laughs> I mean, I've never changed. I look like I'm just an old fart. You know, I just, I've never changed really the way that I look. But people were. Start their hair was getting a bit spikier and they were, they were morphing you know they were they were they were rock bands for fuck's sake but they were they were they'd sussed that this new thing was happening i mean I was quite pally with Andy summers for a while and uh i mean the police weren't they they became a pretend punk band didn't they really yeah yeah with, so. with, a, with a bit of reggae and they weren't like that they were just a straight ahead rock band but they saw it happening and jumped, you know, I would never do that. I can't, I, I can't do that. I can't just for the sake of it. You know, I want to look, I don't want to look in the mirror and think, oh, who's that? <laughs> cause I've
0: changed,
2: you know, cause I've changed everything. So, so did that
0: mean then that that was, was that a bit of an influence into you spending then a, a bit more time, more time producing and, and engineering other bands then? Or?
2: Yeah. Well, I'd, I can't this sounds ridiculous now but I thought that I was of the age where that's what I ought to do I thought I should move into being a backroom person you know I mean I'm the <laughs> I was half the age no less than half the age that I am now but I still felt that I was probably a bit of a senior <laughs> in in, rock, in the rock and roll world you know <laughs> um and I produced the I'd been I mean I'd, I'd been Uh, My first album I I got involved in the production of, so that was a few years earlier, you know. And then since then, I'd dabbled all the time. Uh, And then, of course, the Phoenix thing was my project, so I I did it all. And and I just decided that's what I wanted to do, you know. I mean, we still went out on the road with Phoenix um, for a while. Uh, And then Jim Rodford got asked to join the Kinks, and he went off with Our Blessing. And then Bob got asked to join the Kinks. So he went off with my blessing. Um, (laughs) uh, So it kind of just fizzled out, you know. Um, Phoenix morphed into a band called Charlie. Right, yeah. Yeah. That was the last thing we did. But, I mean, and that came about through production. I was asked to get involved in the production of, of Charlie. Uh, of their new album and they were they were also managed by trident same same as us and uh and queen and when we were in the studio i there were a couple of tracks where charlie's drummer i didn't feel he was cutting it and i just said and this is partly a producer's job you know i said look this has to be as good as it can be and i think we should get bob henry in to play on these tracks. And I think, I thought that about half of the album would have have been better um, with Bob. And when I spoke to the band's drummer, he he was fine with it. He was absolutely fine with it. So we got Bob in to play drums. And then uh, Terry, the the lead singer with Charlie, who wrote all the material and was the lead singer and lead guitarist, uh, he approached me one lunchtime in the pub and said, look, some of the songs you could sing better than me, what do you think? <laughs> so, I said, <laughs> so I said, all right, I, okay, fine. Uh, and he said, there's also some of the guitar parts. So I ended up doing those. And then the, then our manager approached me and said, look, why don't we just put Phoenix and Charlie together, make it heavier than it was, it had been a little bit steely danish that's the best way i can say so bob and i heavied it up a bit obviously and then very sneakily they suggested oh the they said the record company thought we should be called charlie so that's how that happened instead of it becoming a an amalgam of the two bands phoenix disappeared okay. right. didn't rise again then. didn't rise again no <laughs> so then of
1: course yeah, that then you really did kind of make a uh, a career out of production,
2: didn't
1: you? It was a, a yeah a kind of list of stuff.
2: Well, yeah, the first proper one I did, I suppose, was, was Saxon. Um, when I when I was freezing my nuts off in that little house in Queensbury, when we got dropped by the record company, the band split, but I didn't roll over. I decided to just put another band together, and I'd found some musicians, and we were rehearsing. They were all in the house with me, actually, when, when the phone call came from Argent. Uh, and I joined Argent with their blessing. And that version of the John Verity band was me, Biff from Saxon. He was my <laughs> bass player. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and Paul Quinn from Saxon was was my other guitarist. So that was, that was the new John Verity band. Okay. So off I went to... Off I went to, um, to do Argent, and then a couple of years later, I get a phone call from Biff saying, we've got this band called Son of a Bitch. We're getting a really good following in, in um, Yorkshire and everything. Do you think you can help us to get a record deal? So I went up there to see them, and they were cooking. It was great. It was a bit too over the top because they had two bassists because they they had because Biff was still playing bass <laughs> and and Steve, and Steve was playing Steve Dawson was playing bass yeah. and they were doubling all the bass lines so so Steve Dawson was playing with a Fender Precision and Biff was playing a Rickenbacker <laughs> with a really sort of twangy sound and it was just a mess. <laughs> So I booked a studio in London to do some demos. And, and at the sessions, I said, look, Biff, I think you should sing. I think you should stand up, up front, out front because it, it'll look right. And he t- obviously took to it like a duck to water, you know. And then we got him a record deal with a label called Carré, which was a French label. Yeah,
0: yeah, I remember. Yeah, still
2: still we, going upstairs with the yeah. label, yeah. And we finished the album, and uh, the Claude Carrère, the guy that owned the label, sent a message saying, I don't like the name of the band. We need to think of a... And I said, son of a bitch, is a great name for, for, for this band. It's perfect. And he was saying, yeah, but I'm worried about America. We need to break it in America and, and all this nonsense. And then so he said, we have a new name. And when he said Saxon, I was disgusted. I said, it's, that is the worst name on the planet. <laughs> It's awful. <laughs> it Show that awful fucking drawing that they put on the front of it. Ah, yeah. <laughs> we, this looks like some school kid's done it.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but I got outvoted, unfortunately, and they became Saxon. Um
1: <laughs> you still in touch with them, John?
2: Yeah, yeah, Graham's a really good mate um biff and i fell out but well, we didn't actually fall out no but he he's said unkind things about me so i've said unkind things about him <laughs> the thing the thing about record production is that it's, it's sometimes you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place the demos the saxon demos which I'd, unfortunately i lost the multi-tracks I, I they were great the demos were fantastic and then we went in the studio and basically we were just re-recording the demos, but properly, you know. But then I was getting all this pressure about it has to work for America. So I put lots of... All the harmonies on there are all me. All the vocal harmonies are, are me. So I, so I tried to soften it up a bit for America. But I felt we were losing sight of the band. And then, and then when I finished it, sent the final mixes in, I get a message saying... It doesn't sound right. So I'd done what they wanted. And I didn't want to do it like that, but I did, because I didn't want to, to bugger it up for the band. You know what I mean? I was thinking of the band, not me. Uh, I thought, you know, we've got to have the record label and the management behind them. You know, if I dig my heels in and everything, because I've been there, they won't work on it. You know, we had it with Argent, with with CBS in America, that the it, the guys out on the road, if, if, you, if they don't like you or you rub them up the wrong way, they won't work on it. Hmm. Yeah. So I was just trying to be professional about it. And then they, they were saying certain things about the mixes that didn't make sense. I was thinking, oh, they're listening to the same thing as me. And they said, there's no energy. And I'm listening to it. And there's loads of energy coming out of the speakers. So I said, I'll come down and have a meeting with you. Now, this is back in the days when people were still using cassettes, right? So I'd sent the rough mixes to them on a cassette, reluctantly, because I didn't, I mean, years later I refused. I wouldn't give people cassettes anymore. I used to say, if you haven't got a proper tape machine to listen back, then tough. But early on, you had to kind of give in because that's what always used to happen. So I'd sent them a cassette. i get into their office and I said, look, Play it to me, and whilst it's playing, tell me what the, what the, what's wrong with it. So they put the cassette on. It was running miles too fast. So they'd oh no, sorry, I'm getting this wrong. They'd got a cassette of the demos, that was it, oh. and they'd got a reel to reel of of the actual album. So they were listening to the album at the right speed. They were listening to the demos at a million miles an hour, and they thought that's what it sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted the album to sound like they'd heard the demos which was nothing like the band sounded like. I mean Biff sounded like Mickey Mouse.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so so it just ended up so then, I mean I really kind of lost I didn't lose interest but I kind of refused to talk to the record company anymore about it because I thought if they're if you can't tell that's running fast then for heaven's sake. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: And, um so then they had to come round to the fact that that was their mistake, but it sort of fouled it all up, and uh, it obviously wasn't. It wasn't sounding the way that Biff wanted it to sound. But you know, I was trying to work to a brief, make it work. You know, if we're going to make any money, it has to work for the American market. Mm. Yeah, we
0: we we talk about this a lot when we do these podcasts in terms of the the production on albums and that fine line that a producer has got to walk between keeping the, really capturing the band and then the demands of the record company and and what's expected by the market at a particular point in time or a particular sound. It must be a very tough job.
2: Well, it's horrible because you'll, I mean, obviously when you do a finished mix, it sounds the way that you want it to sound. That's, you know, that's how you want it to sound. And then you take it in and the record company says, the lead vocal's not loud enough. Well, the thing is back then, we were still working on vinyl. And if I can try and explain, let's say we finished a mix, the lead vocal is as loud as it can go because you can only get a certain amount of level on vinyl. So if the record company wants the lead vocal louder, you have to take everything else down. You can't make the lead vocal louder. So you have Mm -hmm. to take everything else down so it loses power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people talk about vinyl. I hate vinyl. I've always hated vinyl because, because technically, it's caused me so many headaches.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, how how did you um, earlier episode or previous episode of the podcast? We end up talking about Marseille and Touch the Night, which obviously you produced. Do you, do you have any memories of working with them? I mean, that they, they describe themselves as a rough bunch of lads from Liverpool. Um, who recorded their album? The best I can work out somewhere in Yorkshire.
2: Yeah, that's what I call my studio. Um, I moved. I had moved back to Yorkshire when I when I worked with them, and I bought a house in a place called Cottingley, and it had a four car garage underneath it, which I made into a studio, and I did Marseille there, and I called it. Somebody must have said to me, somebody from a a, a London company must have said, "Where, where, where's Cottingley?" And I'd said somewhere in Yorkshire. And then I thought, I must have thought, "Oh, that's a good good title for an album, uh, a good title for a studio." So I'd called it that.
1: How did you end up working with them then?
2: Uh, I think I did a few things for the label they were signed to, if I remember rightly. And do you have many any memories at all sort of kind of the album and? Yeah, they were, they were good lads, a very straight-ahead band, really, and we used to get a decent sound in that studio. It sounded nice, and I had a nice bangy drum room, you know, so it wasn't dead. It was nice and clattery, which was good for recording rock stuff. Mm-hmm. Around that time, it was quite diffi- It became quite difficult for a while to, to record rock stuff properly in studios, because a lot of studios were going into this thing and making it very dead. All the studios were getting really dead. It was a nightmare in Trident trying to get a decent sound. So when I built my own place, kind of made my mind up what I wanted it to sound like. You know, I wanted it nice and live.
1: I think that comes out in
2: the album as well, doesn't
1: it?
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Did you get? Did you ever get a sense, John? Because we we love the
3: album a bit, so musically and production and everything about it. Did, did you ever get a sense that you know, they could become quite a decent band, or are you just too kind of devoid from that kind of views of bands? It's you know the industry so well. It, it might happen. It might not
2: well no i mean 've I've rarely i 've rarely worked at, well as a producer i 've never worked with somebody that i didn 't like or yeah. that i didn't enjoy working with as an engineer i 've had to work on stuff where i mean i 've done country and western albums um, <laughs> as as an engineer you still find something positive you have to you know you, i mean you have to enjoy the getting the sounds yeah. the way you want them to be but Obviously as an engineer, you can't even get involved creatively. You've got to button it, you know, because people just get upset. Uh <laughs> but as a producer, I've not I've never worked I've never worked with anybody that I haven't believed in, if you want, you know. Yeah. I mean band's first albums are, are are strange anyway. When you're doing a band's first album, you kind of have to do it with your eyes open, that you know it's not gonna that you're not gonna please everybody.
0: Yeah.
2: And the record company usually well, it's not like that anymore. But back then, the record company would let you do a first album and they would let you do pretty much what you wanted. And then they would, from what you'd done, they'd choose a direction for the next album. So whichever was the strongest track, they'd kind of want yeah. ten of them for the next album, you know. And anything that you tried a bit left field, they wouldn't want any of them. Uh yeah. Uh, they might want all the left field ones it depended on the label you know
1: so um well let's let's fast forward because we've 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 kept you for 55 minutes and we've still got some more stuff we'd like to do if you if you've got the time but let's fast forward a bit um so you quite a long way actually about 30 odd years you um you've got the the, you know kind of current stuff you released the album you know passion was released in in 2019 then and then lockdown happens at just the point you probably want to be out promoting that. You know, how's, how's the last sort of 18 months been for you? Because it must be really frustrating
2: as an artist. Well, yeah. Um, passion, I recorded Passion more... I, I'd slipped into this thing of recording like uh, most people do now, of it all being done in bits, you know. So you start with the drums, then you add the bass, and then you blah, blah, blah. So with Passion i booked a studio and went we we and i went in with the drummer and we laid down all the basic tracks in my day and a half uh we did some routining first so we so we demoed all the tracks again which i haven't done for years and we went and laid all the tracks down and then i brought everything here because this is my studio now i brought everything here and uh finish it off here but we had that very live element in the first place uh, and some of the arrangements weren't really arrangements there were there was accidents you know so it's yeah. got feel to it for a change instead of it all being regimented and mm. done to a click track and everything so I was really chuffed with the album and I I did it. I was going to do, I was going to cover some of my old material because it, because it's the 50th anniversary of the John Verity band. It's not my 50th anniversary. I've been playing for a lot longer than that, but it's the 50th anniversary of the John Verity band. I wanted to cover the stuff that I've done over those 50 years, you know, because I have morphed a bit, you know, I went Rocky for a while and then I went back to doing bluesy stuff. And so I was going to, cover some of my own stuff and then i thought no bugger that i'll just i'll write stuff in that in that vein you know right. so the opening track higher it could have almost been on interrupted journey which is an album i did in the early 80s and as the album moves on it's a bit like that and of course i did a chuck berry track because i because of the chuck berry influences and a lot of it is lyrically quite political as to what what's been yeah. going on you no know? um
0: and yeah. then we
2: finished the album, and I was really chuffed with it. And then we got a tour sorted out, and we did three three gigs. And then it shut down.
1: Wow!
2: So it's been a complete disaster, really. I mean, financially, it's a disaster because we'd. I mean, I'm well. Me and the missus were are self contained. You know, we've got our own label. We've got our own publishing. We've got we pay for everything, and. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's quite an investment before you go on the road, and then you start to recoup it. Uh, of course, yeah. we're not we're not recouping it.
0: Is it, is it wise? Up the first that first line. It's nearly twenty twenty, and the world is a mess. I mean, how yeah. pathetic was that? Eh? I know. Oh, no,
2: no, no. <laughs> There's a madman in the house. That I mean, that <laughs> yeah. that means the White House. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you, know, you 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 your hands and uh, feet and everything else been tied for most of this year What what's the plan for next
2: year then i'm purposely not writing i've got loads of ideas and i've chucked i've i've sort of um i use the dreaded iphone these days days like a lot of people do you know when i get an idea i just thrash it out and record it on the iphone And i've got an iphone full of idea of riff ideas and stuff like that but i'm purposely not writing i'm not going to write any songs because I'm gonna start again with passion i can't I can't scrap that album, I believe yeah, in it, no, you know no, definitely not, so, yeah. yeah, so we'll go out on the road and we'll promote passion, but
3: we will definitely see John Verity on the road in twenty twenty one do we think
2: oh yeah, 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 i mean i'm 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 an architect, I'm not gonna stop until I fall over, you know, I mean yeah, yeah. that'll be my last gig, uh as long as I can still walk, you know. Well, if I have to do it sitting down, I'll do it sitting down. coming
1: to managers, don't So, yeah. Well, I think you know um, you, you don't need people like us to tell you, but I, you have to get that album out there because it's a, I mean, it's a proper blues rock album, isn't it? I mean, it's just um, it's a really good listen, and it's just a, such a shame, I as mean, it? There are a lot of artists in this position, you know, with good material, good product, and they can't get it out to people. Mm.
2: Well luckily my missus does the does the dates, and luckily we haven't lost any work. most of the dates have been rescheduled I mean some of them obviously are going to have to get moved again
1: okay so um let's let's get on to um something uh, nice and upbeat rather than gigs that won't happen um your top ten albums of all time you said that's tricky, which is probably an understatement, isn't it but mm. um do you want to talk? Did you give them to us in order, or are you, or is it just no, a random
2: not, not really, not really. I mean, I've got them. I've got them printed out here, and it, it's, it, yeah, it's sort of really, I suppose.
1: Okay. Well, do you want to start at the well? What, what would be, I suppose, the bottom? And let's do a fluff Freeman style, um, just canter through them. Just tell us a bit about why you chose it, and, um, and okay. let's go through and see what you've got there.
2: Well, Rubber Soul by the Beatles, that, that's when they moved away from being a pop band so that the stuff's got some substance. I suppose it lit the songwriting flame in me. You know, it, all of a sudden it was, things were changing. Live at the Regal, sorry, B.B. King. A lot of people, a lot of musicians will, will say that that's one of the things that started them off because it's... I don't know if you've ever listened to it, it's probably not your cup of tea, but the audience is going bananas all the way through it. And it's it makes you think, oh, this is what it can be like. <laughs> <laughs> the adulation, you know? Yeah. Um, and he's on fire. He's on fire. It's just... It leaps out of the speakers, you know? And I know it's old-fashioned playing and everything, but, I mean, the guy had chops. He he was yeah. just special. yeah. Um,
3: yeah. When was it recorded, yeah. John? Do you know? I mean, I'm not sure I could Google it, but
2: roughly. I can't. No, I can't remember now because it's been it's been reissued so many times. I don't even oh. know whether I had the original version. Um, uh, yeah. Then the Indianola Mississippi Blues is a later BB King album. It was, I think, that was about 1968, 67, 68, and it was um, one of the nice things nicest things about that album is it's. Uh by then he's working with a a rock producer, Bill simsick uh who did well he did the he did Joe Walsh and he did the James Gang before, you know, the job that Joe Walsh was in before. Yeah. And then since since then he's done um the Eagles. Okay. Uh, yeah, so but he's a proper rock producer. Mm. Uh, and he brought modern musicians in with BB and it really works. Um, in fact, Joe Walsh is on playing guitar on it. Okay. Uh, but there's all sorts of people on it that you wouldn't expect, you know, if you when you read the credits and it just really works. Um, and then around that time, smoke the smoke you drink the play you get which is joe walsh w- when i signed to uh, abc dunhill for the first album i got sent all this stuff that turned me on to different things you know back then when you signed to a record company they tended to put you on the mailing list and right. you would get all the new albums it was fantastic <laughs> brilliant uh, yeah yeah um so this Joe Walsh album plopped through the door, and I'd never heard of Joe Walsh when it, because he, he hadn't broken over here, because we obviously he got it a long time in advance, you know? Yeah. I put this album on, and it just bowled me over. It was fantastic. And it's a great album. I mean, everybody remembers Rocky Mountain Way, but but there's some great stuff on there, you know? Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. Most guitarists will own up that that changed their lives, really. Um... Maybe not the maybe not the young you know sort of the younger end, but um, that's the first time any of us had heard a Les Paul through a Marshall
0: okay.
2: uh, and what it yeah. could sound like. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I mean, I can't, people are very unkind about Clapton, but he he changed everything. You know, there wouldn't be rock guitarists like there are now without Eric Clapton. Yeah,
1: is, there's no way. It- no, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think musicians are unkind about him either. It's, it's 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 people reinventing what they think they've heard, isn't it? Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know he, he went soft, and 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 I kind of do, can't forgive him for that in a way because he seemed to lose his fire. You know, if you listen to that Bluesbreakers album again, there's some stuff on there that gives you goose pimples. Some of the guitar playing, yeah. it's. And he hits notes that none of us would ever have. I mean, there aren't that many notes on there. <laughs> you know, there's, 12, there's twelve to choose between because they're just repeated, obviously. Yeah. But he hits notes, and, and as a guitar player back then, anyway, you go. I mean, it's now everybody's doing it, obviously. But back then, it was it was like Hendrix. You know, he was doing stuff that none of us had ever done. I mean, there's nothing left that anybody can do now. So that's what was amazing about that. Um, Jeff Beck Group, uh, the first two Jeff Beck albums were really um, the template for Zeppelin. Um, Beck must have been well pissed off when, when, uh, <laughs> when Paige put Zeppelin together because it was basically just what, it was the Jeff Beck Group with Robert <laughs> Um I mean, the, the weak link in the Jeff Beck Group um, uh, was the singer, <laughs> <laughs> by by a long way. Yeah. But all that stuff was happening. me. I mean, Zeppelin even did a couple of songs lifted directly lifted a couple of things off the off Beck's first two albums. Um I'll I'll jump to Terry Reid next, Superlongs with Terry Reid. Ter- I don't know if you know but Terry Reid was supposed to be the singer in Zeppelin no i didn't know that. I knew that no yeah yeah he was offered the gig first um no. i did I, I was aware of terry reed when i was with when i was with dave berry i was aware of terry reed he was becoming in the late 60s he was becoming quite hot and he was he was he had this amazing voice when i was with dave berry we did a gig at the Redcar jazz club in 1969 and we opened for terry reed Uh, I'd never seen Terry Reid, but I'd heard this buzz about him. And we did our set, and then I stood out there watching Terry Reid. And apart from being bowled over, I thought, and he's got a high voice. He had the same registered voice as me. And it was that night that I said to myself, I can be a singer. Because they they kept stopping me. You know, the band, they kept saying, no, you've got this horrible high voice. You can't. And so it was that night that I came away thinking, "Sod you!" I'm going to, I'm going to be a singer, you know, <laughs> and and that's what that's what kicked me off really. And then, of course, a year later, the Zeppelin album comes out, and and that was again. I don't think people now can really, probably, quite appreciate what the first Zeppelin album did because it was really ground groundbreaking. It was just. It was so powerful compared with what everything else was like then, you know? And really open sounding, everything was big. I mean, Bonham's... The way Bonham played and that big sound and everything was ambient, nothing was... You know, I talked about Dead Studios before. Nothing was dead. It was... Everything had room around it and, I don't know, it was really special. And then Electric Ladyland, same... Similar thing, really. Hendrix had... I mean... He was in a typical production situation in that he was being made to be a pop artist, wasn't he? And he wasn't. Yeah. He was, they were making him make pop singles, you know, three minute singles uh, and quirky three minute singles, singles like uh, Burning the Midnight Lamp and stuff like that, you know, uh, and The Wind Drop, Cries Mary. Uh, Purple Haze was very, um, very, it didn't have any feel it was very, the single of it was very structured and you know probably not anything like the way he played it live and then of course when he got a bit of power later on and they built the studio in in New York and went and did Electric Ladyland, he just, he was let loose and that album is amazing I saw him on the first club tour that he ever did in in the UK, I saw him in a pub And, it's, and it was full of guitarists. <laughs> with the all oh, with the chins on the ground, you know.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> he walked out he walked out on stage with his guitar, wrong way around, obviously, finishing his cigarette off, going Oh, it was just killer. Brilliant. But everybody went, oh all these guitar players <laughs> chucking spectrums yeah. <the> away. <laughs> uh and I've put everything by anything by Jackson Brown. Um mm. it, if you're if you write songs, um you can often if you listen to Jackson Brown, you can feel like giving up. It's another thing. He's so 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 good at it, you know. Um and none of us want to be disillusioned or anything like that. But it, I mean, I listen to Jackson Brown in the van all the time to get on the way to gigs, and it's it can either bring you down or it can inspire. you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, let's hope it's more of the latter.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it does with me. I mean, I, 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 yeah. It, it's. I just find it amazing. You think, where did he get that idea from? You know, <laughs> where did that come from?
0: Yeah.
1: That's fascinating, fascinating. And a really uh, yeah, great privilege to get an insight into what's kind of moved you over the years. But you, uh, as we always do, we ask the people that we have the pleasure and privilege of talking to to set us some homework. So we've asked you to give us three albums uh, that will make up the next edition of the podcast. So what have we got in store
2: well, the smoker you drink, the play you get. Because I think that it's it might be a bit of an undiscovered gem, really, to people these days. Uh, an electric ladyland, for all the reasons that I've just been waffling on about. And then this means War by Tank, because it's one that I produced that I think sort of should have been bigger than it was, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was done in somewhere in Yorkshire.
3: Yeah I am looking so, forward for to the Joe Walsh because that's that that's that's new to me John I'm 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 looking forward to that
2: that'd be a good listen
3: yeah didn't tank play donington the first donington was that tank
2: yeah 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 they've done I mean they've done they did a lot of albums um I mean they're real characters they they were big big mates with lemmy that's
1: a dangerous think, part.
2: yeah yeah well I produced Motörhead I produced a flipping live album can you imagine that <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it, the first the first day of the recordings that that it was done with the Rolling Stones mobile. You know there was a there was a mobile that Stones built that mo- a lot of live albums recorded on it. And the first day of recording, I turned up uh, and the, and I could hear them sound checking, and the trucks was outside and all the cables had been running and you know the guy had done it all. So I it went up a sort of a ladder to get into the into the stu into the control room. Yeah. So I climbed up into the truck and, and he'd set all the desk out and everything. It was all nice and he'd labeled everything kick drum, snare drum, hi hat, you know, guitar, blah, 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 all going across. And all the faders were down. So I just introduced myself and sat down, pushed up the kick drum fader. It had everything on. So <laughs> pushed the snare drum fader, it had everything on it. So I pushed up the hi hat. Got everything on it. And I said, "What's going on?" He said, "Well, you better go and listen." So I went in, and it was so loud, and and, the, and the, they had all these side fill monitors as well that had deafening everything coming out of them. And it's basically every microphone had everything on it. <laughs> now, Motorhead's, Motorhead's manager was a bit of a gangster, and and so I was. I went back in the truck, and I'm trying to get it to sound. Anything like you know, and I'm thinking I'm just going to get sacked in the first day because it <laughs> sounds awful. And uh, and we, I said, let's just record a bit because he's going to want to hear it. So we recorded some, and then I heard these footsteps coming up the up the ladder, and I heard Doug's voice, the, the manager's voice, and I thought, oh, this is it. So as he as he got to the top of the steps, I pressed play, and we we played this. This song, and then I press stop, and I expected to maybe get a slap across because he was they're all behind me. See, I'm sitting at the desk and they're all behind me. Doug's voice says, fucking fantastic.
0: <laughs> it, was, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful.
2: <laughs> but it's, it's obviously what he got used to hearing. Well,
0: it captured, <laughs> yeah. it, ca- it captured what a motorhead gig actually sounds like. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah I think one of, one of the tracks is on uh, on YouTube. If you want to have a listen to it, I think it's because uh, it, they did a version of Hoochie Coochie Man, and it was when uh, Brian, Rob- Brian Robertson was the guitarist by by them, and it starts off with a Brian's guitar feature, whilst they were all canning him with cans we pissing and bottles we pissing and stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, look, you, only have, you only have to listen to another perfect day to know that Robo was never going to last that long in that band. Far I mean, too melodic know, for. You know what things. he was
2: wearing? You know what he was wearing? No pink shorts. <laughs> 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 oh dear,
1: Brilliant. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been really generous okay. with time. We have really, really enjoyed it. It's been, um, it's been great, and uh, and thanks also for being so candid with us because that's always nice as well. Hopefully, you've enjoyed it as much as we have.
2: I like sharing stuff. It's
1: good,
3: John. We could do so many more episodes. You've got so many stories to tell, mate. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for your time.